But right now, uh, we're going to read from the Scriptures. At City Light, we believe that the Bible is God's Word, and as it's read and taught faithfully, it's God speaking to us. And Jacob's going to speak from Acts 2, 1 to 13, but I'm going to read now from sentence 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these all speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, my name is Jacob, if we haven't met before. Uh, great to see uh, a bunch of new faces, great to see as well maybe some of you that have joined us over those last few weeks celebrating our 10th anniversary and dedications last week. And so yeah, just want to extend my welcome to what Jez said to anyone who is just joining us or looking for a, a faith community or exploring, maybe even coming in um, quite sceptical or uh, trying to just think through the big questions of faith. We just, we're glad you're here, we hope that today's really helpful for you. And, um, and particularly, I hope it's helpful for you as we, as we dive into this passage, which is, um, yeah, which is an interesting one, and it's one I'm really looking forward to jumping into now. So let's just pray that uh, God would be speaking to us through his word now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've just got this insight through your word to see what wonderful things you've done. That by your word we can, we can see a, a time of history that maybe otherwise we wouldn't have access to, to see how you've worked in a particular way in a particular place. But even more than that, Lord, we just thank you that we've got this opportunity to see how you're working today. To, to know you as God, to know you as personal, as the God who loves us, who is with us and who speaks to us. And we just ask that you'd be speaking to us now. Amen. Now, one of the most enjoyable biographies I've read in recent times was Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, the founder and CEO of Apple. And I think that's partly just because I'm a bit of a nerd and like anything about like tech, I'm probably just going to be able to get through. But um, I think one of the reasons I particularly enjoyed it and I think it's been a really successful biography is that by examining Steve Jobs' life, it gives a bit of an explanation as to how Apple has become this, this company that it's become. Um, how Apple and its influence in the world, even if you don't own Apple products, just the way that it's shaped personal computers, smartphones, the music industry, is undeniable. It's now the most valuable company in the world. Um, but it wasn't always the case. Back in, in the late 70s, early 80s, when Steve Jobs starts this thing out, it's, just, it's basically a couple of guys working from a garage. And so one of the questions is, how does this little thing just happening in some kind of corner of America grow to be something which has changed the whole world? And what I enjoyed about the biography is seeing just how little aspects of Steve, Steve Jobs' personality explain how Apple is. Even the very name of it. Steve Jobs, you might not know, experimented with a fruitarian diet, 
which means he literally went weeks on end only eating maybe carrots or then apples. And so he went with apple, and that's why he called apple, apple. At uni, Steve Jobs didn't study IT or computing or business, as maybe you'd imagine. He studied the arts. He took courses in calligraphy, which led him to insist to the despair of his programmers that in the first computer that he released, that users would be able to change their own fonts, not have them set for them. It was unheard of, but it's just absolutely changed everything. He studied dance, he studied Shakespeare, and, and knows the importance of creativity and a good story, which is why so much of Apple's advertising has just had these kind of great stories built into it. He had a personal love of music, an avid, genuine Beatles and Bob Dylan fan that kind of stayed with him until he found an outlet for his love of music in the creation of the iPod. He was a minimalist. Even after he was just more wealthy than anyone could ever imagine, he still lived in a pretty much unfurnished home. He had a mattress, a chair, and a lamp. And when he got married, his wife wanted to change this and get stuff in it, and it just led to constant fights. He even exasperatedly said, what is the purpose of a sofa? So some good like marriage kind of insights there. For, for he would have been a real joy. But, um, but that just came through in all the design. In a world of Blackberries, when everyone had phones with like full, like full keyboards built into them, he released the iPhone with a single button on the front. It's the whole kind of frustrating tendency of Apple computers to have less and less ports to plug your things into. Steve Jobs is, is the explanation for Apple of how so much of what they did was different to what was being done around them. And it explains a huge part of the growth of this company. Something as big and as world-changing as Apple needs to have an explanation behind it. And I think the book of Acts provides a similar, really, a set of explanation for the church. Christianity is the biggest religion in the world. 2.2 billion people, in some way, shape, or form, identify with some branch of Christianity. There are estimated to be 45,000 different denominations around the world, let alone actual individual churches like this. It's almost hard, impossible to count. These churches and, and Christianity have spawned countless schools, universities, hospitals. Most of the most well-known charities that we're aware of, like World Vision or Vinnie's or the Salvos, have their origin in the church. It's everywhere. But 2,000 years ago, this wasn't the case. Acts gives us like a window into the startup days of the church, when it was basically kind of getting run out of a garage. You see all of these firsts. There's a first time that Christians say, hey, let's meet in someone's home together and pray together. There's the first time that Christians look out and see poor people around them. They're not part of the church, but they're poor, and they think, well, is there anything we can do to help these people? There's the first time that people from different ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic backgrounds come together with one faith and have to figure out how to make this work. It gives an insight to all of these things. But really, it also gives a window as to how does this small group of people in ancient Judea eventually grow to become this 2.2 billion people across the world today? What powers the growth of the church? And the answer that the book of Acts gives the whole way through is that this isn't because of the clever decisions or the creativity or the hard work of a select few men and women but it's because of the acts of God. How Jesus, from his throne, builds his church and how he empowers this growth through the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to be looking at today is really what this story that many people would describe as the birth of the church. And what we're going to see is it's the presence of God and the power of God as manifest in the Holy Spirit 
that is responsible for the growth of the church. So that's where we're heading today, presence and power. If you haven't joined us in the last couple of weeks, where we are in the book of Acts is we're still very, very early on. Jesus, in chapter 1, has risen from the dead, and he spent 40 days with, with his disciples um, and, and a bunch of others, teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. And he's told them this game plan that uh, they just have to kind of wait for a little bit, but not before too long. Um, the Holy Spirit is going to start the growth of the church. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which we've looked at these past couple of weeks, uh, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then Jesus ascends into heaven, and the disciples just devote themselves to a time of prayer, a time of waiting, perhaps not unlike what, what Graham and Sarah are describing, where they just don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but they know the best thing to do is to pray and to wait for God to work. And then we get this story that Jez just read to us before. And, um, and so it's, we're going to work through this story and, and try to understand what is going on here and what it is telling us about our God. So chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So the setting here is, the, is it's in Jerusalem, and it's the festival of Pentecost. It's one of three festivals that Jews would descend on the capital of Jerusalem to commemorate significant things in their history and to worship and remember their God, Yahweh. Probably the most famous of these would be Passover, which you're probably familiar with, which is the time of remembering God's salvation from Egypt, in which he spared his people who had taken shelter under the blood of a lamb. And this is the time in the Jewish calendar where Jesus died and was raised. And what we remember at Easter time is what originally happened at the Jewish Passover, where Jesus died, showing that he was the new Passover lamb. So that's Passover. And then 50 days after Passover would come Pentecost. Pentecost literally just means 50. And the reason for this is according to Jewish tradition, that following the very first Passover, getting rescued from Egypt, the people of Israel spent seven weeks of seven days, so 49 days, wandering Mount Sinai, before they, uh, the Sinai Desert, before they came to Mount Sinai on the 50th day. And on that day, God came down from heaven, rested upon this mountain in a storm and in fire, and he gave Israel the law and set them apart as his people. So year after year at Pentecost, the Jews would remember this story of having been brought out of Egypt through this Passover narrative. Fifty days later, they were remembering that God gave them the law, made them his people. And so that's where we are. And this is significant because just as Jesus' death and resurrection gave us a new depth to understanding the Passover narrative, what we see here is God acting to give a new meaning to this Pentecost festival. So let's see what happens. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What we see in these verses is a miracle. One of the things you find as you read through the Bible, if you read enough of it, you'll be reading normal stuff, normal stuff, normal stuff, and then all of a sudden something weird happens. It doesn't happen all the time, but at certain times, God, the God who made the universe, intervenes in some spectacular way to do something or maybe to show something. And in particular, some of the miracles that you find through the Bible are really associated with a, a demonstrated sign of God's presence. 
And oftentimes, when God does kind of show up and make his presence known, fire is the kind of image that is associated with that. When God first speaks to Abraham, um, which is in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, he appears to him in a, a burning bush. When God comes to his people on Mount Sinai, like I just mentioned before, it says that he appeared as, as a fire on the mountain. If you continue reading the book of Exodus, you see the story of the people of Israel uh, traveling around before they made their final home in Jerusalem. And, and part of that was that they take, wherever they went, a tabernacle, which was like a, a giant tent, which was to be like a, a sign that God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And every night, a cloud of fire would rest upon this tabernacle. And so what we're seeing here in this account is a, is a miracle that is bringing to mind the idea of God's presence. God's presence not settling on a mountain, not settling on a building or a tent, but settling on every single one of Jesus' disciples that were here in this space. And what this is meant to show us is that God is present with these people. This is one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. That it's the, the Holy Spirit is the means by which God's people can experience his presence. I think oftentimes with Christians, you know, we've got this idea of the Trinity, that God is one and three. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father and the Son we're, we're good with. We're kind of clear enough to kind of wrap our heads around a little bit. But the Holy Spirit is this mysterious third person of the Trinity uh, that, we, that we struggle to kind of understand, I think, as Christians. Francis Chan, an author, wrote a book called Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. I tried to get a hold of this book, couldn't find it, but the title is good enough to say that it's clearly this felt thing that, that, that something, the Holy Spirit, is, is forgotten. It doesn't get the same weight as, as, as the Father and as the Son, Jesus. We don't know what to do with it. And this idea of saying that the Holy Spirit's been forgotten, for me at least, conjures up this idea that maybe there's like a part of God that we've left out in the backyard, in the shed, in a box, and we've forgotten that he's there. Recently we moved house, and in, in doing that you kind of have to pack everything, get all the cupboards out. And I found in my garage an electric saw. And I just recently had bought like a, a manual handsaw to cut some wood. And I was like, I had this all along. And I wonder if that's what the Holy Spirit's like. Sometimes maybe we feel like, like the Holy Spirit's there and we're just, not, we're just not using him somehow. That's one way of forgetting. But there's another way of forgetting, which is the forgetting of over-familiarity. So also with moving house, one of the things you do at the very end is the dreaded bond clean. And I, had, I just found myself scrubbing the walls, and I was like, I did not realize the walls of this apartment I've been living in for three years were so filthy. I see them every single day. They're there, they're important, they hold things up. I vacuum the floor, but I just didn't even notice what was going on with the walls because you're overly familiar. I actually think this is more the way that we forget the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to be the presence of God for his people. And I think we experience the presence of God daily to the point where we can take it for granted. We can take for granted the reality that God is with us if we are his people. There is obviously this sense that God is everywhere at once, and it's hard to even think about how God who's outside of the universe is in it. There's that kind of being present. But there's another sort of presence that I think the Holy Spirit is to us, which is the personal, the relational presence. My son River just turned three and he's in this annoying but also really cute and heartwarming stage at the moment where he just wants to have either me or, or Sarah with him all the time. 
And so he'll, he'll put him to bed at night and he'll just want us to be in the bed with him. And so you say no. He's like, well, can you stay in the room and sit on the floor? Say no to that. Well, can you sit outside the room where I can see you? And it's kind of, it's cute, it's heartwarming. And if, like, even when you turn the lights off and try to sneak out, he'll say, no, I want you to stay. But you're like, ah, it's nice, but very annoying. <laughs> but there's this reality that like, kids have where, where presence matters. You know, where you, they don't want to feel that they're alone. They don't want to feel that they are forgotten. There's a, in, other part, in another part of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is actually even called the Comforter. The Holy Spirit is the means, if you've experienced in your life as a follower of Jesus, the sense when you became a Christian perhaps, or when you've been going through a hard time perhaps, or just each and every day when you open your Bible and pray that, that God is with you, that he knows you, that he is personal with you, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not the default experience of humanity to feel like God is there, that he knows us and that we can know him. Prior to this moment at Pentecost, the way you'd have a sense of experiencing the presence of God would be to go to the temple if you were a Jew. But what this is signifying as this, as this fire descends and rests upon people is saying, that's the old way of doing things, but now the Spirit is with you. At Mount Sinai, maybe God appeared and showed up and gave Israel the law, but now by his Spirit, he's showing up and writing the law on their hearts. And this is an aspect of why the church has grown across geographic boundaries, across nations, is that God is present wherever his people go. This is why Christianity defies borders. This is why when Christians come under hard times and persecution, they can stand firm because God is with them even when they are isolated, even when they are alone, even when they're on the other side of the world. And this is how people in all parts of the world keep coming to know God because where his people are, he is. That an encounter with a person filled with the Holy Spirit is an encounter with God. So that's the first thing we see in this account of Pentecost. It's this, this paradigm shift to say that the Holy Spirit is entering people and God has made himself present with them. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit. But as we, as we keep reading the story, we see not only does the Holy Spirit fill these early disciples with God's presence, but he also fills them with God's power. Let's read on from verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, on some levels, the story's gone from, from weird to weirder here. Um, so the believers, they gather, they've experienced this kind of fire resting upon them, and now they start speaking in tongues. And I, and I recognize that this is quite a loaded um, phrase, depending on your background as, as a Christian. Speaking in tongues as an idea might conjure up all kinds of maybe feelings or images. And it's a phrase that, in our, the way we use it, has a real kind of spiritual element attached to it, doesn't it? The only time you'd say to someone, so-and-so is speaking in tongues, you'd be talking about some kind of religious, maybe supernatural thing going on. But it's just worth noting here, a bit of just kind of language stuff, that the Greek word glossa, which literally means tongue, has this semantic range to, to mean the tongue in your mouth, the organ that you talk with, or just language. It was just used as a way of describing language. We get a little bit of this when you say, you know, talk about someone's mother tongue as their kind of home language, but normally in English, we kind of divide it up 
your tongue's the thing in your mouth and language is the way you put words together and, and speak to people. But in Greek, the one word is for both. And so when they're translating the Bible, they've got to make a choice. Are they going to say tongue or are they going to say language when this word shows up? And tongue's slightly more literal, they go with that. But just it might be helpful as you read this to contextually recognize that the word just means language. There's no kind of inherent thing about this word that makes it particularly spiritual. In this passage, there's another word in Greek, dialecto, that's also translated language, and they're used completely interchangeably. Sometimes it says tongue, sometimes it says language. So just keep that in mind as we, as we keep reading this story. Verse 5. We just read uh, to verse 7. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Jerusalem, to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, when we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. So there's a long list of nations here, and I think this is really important. It's Pentecost, like we said before, and at Pentecost, the, the population of Jerusalem would probably swell by about 100,000 people as faithful Jewish people who would maybe move to different parts of the Middle East, the Mediterranean, um, Asia, uh, Northern Africa, for all kinds of different reasons, would come back. And also, people who had converted to Juda Judaism would come back as a sign of faith to, to join in with this, this festival. And what it's saying here is that when all this is happening, this noise, this great wind, people speaking other languages, that stands out to people. I don't know if you've ever been like, in another part of the world, like you could be in you know, somewhere where there's almost no English being spoken in like, a busy market or something like that, and you just hear somewhere in the distance someone speaking English with an Aussie twang. And it just kind of like, it just stands out because you know, I'm not expecting to hear that here. That's what's going on. These people who are from all these scattered nations throughout the, the, the Middle East and beyond are saying, what is going on? Where these people who are all from one part of the world, Galilee, know all of these languages. And particularly what's happening is that they're speaking in these languages the wonders of God. That's the miracle that's taking place here. Um, again, it, it's a slightly different thing to what's referenced in the book of Corinthians, if that's a part of the Bible we're familiar with, where there are people who in a church gathering are, are speaking languages that no one can understand. And Paul says to them in that context, look, this isn't helpful unless there's someone there that can make sense of what you're saying. Can you actually please not do that in your gatherings because we need to understand what is being said. But that's not the phenomenon that we're seeing here. What we're seeing here in the book of Acts, even though it's using that same word of, for language, is the miraculous ability to speak a foreign language. And it's there for a reason to, to explain what God is doing. They ask the question in verse 12, what does this mean? And the meaning of this, of this unique, amazing miracle, is that Jesus is fulfilling the promise that we've been looking at these last few weeks, where he says to his disciples, you'll receive the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's this idea of there being these concentric circles from Jerusalem and the nation of Judea, and around that Samaria, the, the, the northern broken off part of Israel, and then ultimately the whole world where the gospel is going to go out. 
And what we see here is in Jerusalem, and not just Jerusalem, but all of Judea is represented, even those, even Judea represented to all the ends of the earth have come together for a clear demonstration of the witnessing of the Holy Spirit, that these disciples are able to proclaim without any barrier of language or anything else the wonders of God, and in particular, what Jesus has done in fulfilling the Old Testament. That's why there's something so out of the ordinary is going on. It's this extraordinary moment of the Holy Spirit particularly empowering a group of people so that the gospel would go out. And the Holy Spirit empowers in a whole bunch of ways. Next week we're going to see Peter stand up in front of this crowd and be empowered by the Spirit to preach, to, to preach to these people the message of salvation. As we move through the book of Acts, we're going to see the Holy Spirit work again in significant ways to, as it overcomes the barrier of taking the gospel to Samaria. And then again, as the gospel moves out even further to the ends of the earth. There are going to be times when the Holy Spirit empowers people, not through speaking of tongues, but just with confidence to speak in their own native language. Or to, to lead a group of people through a difficult time. Or to find joy. Or to endure an an unjust, painful death with dignity and resolve and with hope. This is the story of the gospel going out. That the Holy Spirit empowers his people in whatever way he is needed and whatever way he desires to accomplish the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that one day the entire world will, will see the witness of what he has done. So what do we do with this passage? It's, it's a... It's a full-on, in-your-face, interesting part of the Bible. I think it's worth just noting and appreciating this window that we've got into the birth of the church, that we actually can just be grateful that we've received the gospel. That because of what the Holy Spirit has done in this moment and in many moments since, that we've had an opportunity to actually see and hear what Jesus has done. And to know that what is going on in the book of Acts isn't just isolated to the book of Acts, but the same spirit of God's presence, the same spirit of God's power is the Holy Spirit that we have today. It wasn't that the church used to grow through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, but now it grows due to good organizing and, um, and leadership skills. No, the reason the church is growing today in so many parts of the world is that God continues to be at work by his spirit. And we want to be a people who lean into this, who actually experience and, and notice and enjoy God's presence with us. That we can just know that intimate connection that is on offer to have the God living within us, to know that our bodies are a, a temple for the Holy Spirit. But also, our hope as a church is that it doesn't kind of stop with us here in this room, but that the gospel would continue to go out through us. There are millions of people in Sydney who have no idea what Jesus did for them. Millions of people in Sydney have not heard in a way that connects with them, that makes sense to them, what, what an amazing reality it is that the, the God who made them loves them and has invited them into relationship with him. We want to be a church that's sharing the gospel. But we know that our success in doing this isn't going to be just dependent on us. It's going to be the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. In a couple of weeks' time, as Jez said, we're going to be over the Easter long weekend in this space reflecting on Jesus' death for us, 
and the hope of forgiveness that that has brought about. And on the Sunday, to be reflecting on his resurrection and the hope of new life. And our hope is that over those kind of two services, people are going to actually hear this message for the first time and respond. The people might be invited along, or maybe there are people who come along to church because it's Easter time. And we want this to be an opportunity to connect people with the love of the, of the gospel. We want to be praying for the Holy Spirit's work in that. We want to be praying that the Holy Spirit actually works in us, that it's not just something that people hear from the front that's going to change them, but that it's us as a church, as we go out, that we would be empowered. And so the, the one kind of application I want to do from this, this talk today is to be saying that I think as a church we want to be praying towards this end. We want to be asking God to, to be at work in us, through us, by the Holy Spirit. And so every single week before church at 10 to 10 in, uh, on a Sunday morning, a bunch of us get together and pray. Often it's those who are serving in different ways here at church. But for the next two Sundays between now and the Easter weekend, we want to be um, spending a bit of a longer time in prayer in that time and particularly just be praying from 10 to 10 to 10 past 10, I think is what we decided on, for the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, through us, that people would be coming to new life in this city, they would know the good news of the gospel, that they would be able to hear and comprehend the wonders of God being being spoken to them. So I want to invite you to that. Next Sunday morning, 9.50 in the morning, in this space, we're going to be praying for 20 minutes as a church that the Holy Spirit would be moving in us and amongst us this year that people would come to know the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we just thank you that this spirit that we read of here is the spirit that you have that is available for us. Lord, you are the one who breathes life. You are the one who opens eyes. You are the one who awakes souls. And we thank you that for many of us, this has been our experience, that you have breathed life into us. You have brought us to a saving knowledge of you. And Lord, we just pray that we would be a people who see what you are doing through your presence and through your power and through your spirit living in us. Lord, I also just pray for those in this room who are just seeking, looking for answers, feeling distant from you maybe, uh, wishing that they, they could see you clearly or have the answers that they're looking for. I just ask that you would be speaking to them, that you would actually be sending your spirit into them. They might know this intimacy, this closeness and this presence. And Lord, we just pray that going forward that we would be a church who is empowered by you, that you empower us to speak the gospel in our workplaces, with our friends, with those that we live near, we would have just the confidence, the love, the intentionality that comes with having you living inside us as your gospel goes out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.